Okay, let's uh, open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for our salvation that we have because of your grace, because of your sovereign purpose in history in arranging the complete atonement and finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. We thank you that it's not dependent on human merit. We cannot add to it. We cannot change it. That it is indelibly um, brought into existence through that finished work of Christ. We ask that the Holy Spirit who revealed that gospel to the apostles and prophets and created the New Testament, that he would be our teacher tonight. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you'll turn over to on your notes to that table eight again, we're going to continue working with that. Um, it's really necessary that we understand how Israel functions in history. How the there's a set of spiritual dynamics that are at stake here because when we look at the New Testament we see the Lord Jesus Christ and his virgin birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, ascension and session and it's been Israel, Israel, Israel up to this point and then Israel because they rejected, nationally rejected, the Messiah you had rejection number one, which was the Gospels, because the Gospels record the rejection of Jesus Christ by the nation Israel. Then rejection number two happened in the early book of Acts, because once again the nation was offered the kingdom, because the king was there and uh, in the Gospels. And then in the book of Acts, uh, was Peter said that if Israel still would repent and reconsider their decision about who Jesus Christ was that they could have their kingdom. The times of refreshing would come. Well, that didn't happen. And as a result of that, we have the rise of the church age. So we have this new thing called the church. And of course now we're studying the end of that church age of how this terminates here. But the problem is that we also know from the Old Testament that though Israel nationally was set aside here, it's not a permanent setting aside. So Israel sort of lies dormant during this age, as far as God is concerned and his purposes, lies dormant. And then we know that Israel once again in the future will pick this up and finish her purpose in history, which was to bring in the kingdom. She will be the center of that kingdom to come. So all this has to do with the word eschatology. This is the word that we're studying. This is the subject material. And eschatos means last. It's the Greek word for last. So eschatology is logos, that's the ending in this word. It's, every time you see a word like this, biology, geology, it's always a logic, a knowledge of something. So you take the word apart, and that's what it means. It means the knowledge of last things. And every um, dynamic movement in history has had an eschatology. They've either been lies and deceit, or they have been the truth. 
and Christianity has had its competitors. And of course, one of the eschatologies of the 20th century was communism. Communism had a well-defined eschatology. That that's why they were so fanatical, and it was hard to stop communists because they believed very sincerely that they would bring in their version of the kingdom. It's always people trying to bring in a kingdom. Muslims have an eschatology. They believe in conquering the world and bring it under Shia, under the law, under their law of the Koran. So there's other eschatologies out there. There's the eschatology of Western secularism that you learn in public schools. Uh, that's a meaningless eschatology. It's just there's no purpose behind it. Uh, you can read Carl Sagan's book, um, The Cosmos, and he just says that time just goes on, and it goes on long enough to make good works. Well, it doesn't answer the question, why should I bother? If the universe is not run by a personal God and it's just processes, why bother? So eschatology is a very important thing, and then eschatology also has to do with individual destinies. Where will we spend eternity? Is there an eternity? All that's wrapped up in this word eschatology. And you can begin to see when we start peeling away the meanings of the word that everyone has some form of an eschatology. Every one of you, right now, if we could do a computer readout of what's on your mind and what you've thought through, you have a personal eschatology. Now, you may not consciously sit there and think it all through, but if you observe how you respond to things in life, um, particularly when you're challenged, when you're very heavily challenged, when you're tempted to be depressed, when you're tempted to see an obstruction to what you consider to be the purpose in your life, how you respond to that will tell you basically what your eschatology is like. So we all have an eschatology. And what we're trying to do in, on Thursday nights now is look at what the Bible says is the proper eschatology. And to do that, we have to understand to the church and its destiny and Israel and its destiny. So right tonight, we're still on table number eight because we're looking at Israel and how Israel functions in time through, pro through progress. Now, one of the, again, to review, how do you distinguish Israel from the church? What do we say? That Israel is what that a church isn't. The church is not a nation. Israel is a nation. It's a national entity. You can't conceive of Israel without conceiving of a government and law and political leaders and people. You can't conceive of Israel without a temple. This is what the dilemma of modern, this modern state of Israel has. And the Orthodox, there's groups of Orthodox Jews today that believe very sincerely that they are going to have their temple back. And this is going to really be a bombshell because you know how fanatical the Muslims are about Palestine and the West Bank. Leave alone Jews building a temple on top of the, the Temple Mount there. You want to start World War III, that's a great way of doing it. But the point is that the Jews believe, not all of them, the secular and the atheist Jews don't, but there are Jews, Messianic-type Jews, and Jews that are very orthodox, believe very sincerely that someday, somehow, on that mount, in the east part of the modern city of Jerusalem, there is going to be a temple, period. And in, because of this, they've already bred a, a cow, red heifer, that the Bible says is going to have to be sacrificed in that temple. That's already been done. Uh, the priestly clothing is being worked on right now. Some of the 
furniture of the tabernacle is being crafted right now. So people say, well, what are you crafting this for? You don't have a temple yet. We're going to have one, they say. So Israel's not going away, and it's going to be around, and it has a destiny. So last time on table eight, we pointed out those four scriptures. You know, each of the four columns in that table refer to an Old Testament scripture. And we went through Leviticus 26 last time, and we said there's the blessings and there's the cursings. And if you look at your table, that's why down on the bottom uh, it's 26 verses 1 to 13. That's the blessing passages. Then there's the cursing passages. And then there's the verses 40 to 45 where the nations are judged. Now, if you look in the leftmost column of table 8, Israel's historical existence, you'll see there are four rows. Now, what I want you to look at carefully tonight, we're going to go through all these Old Testament passages, and I want you to see the pattern recurs. And you want to understand this because it'll help you understand the Old Testament. It'll help you place books. When you read a book in the Old Testament, you've got to think to yourself, where does this book fit in the grand scheme of things? So what I've done on Table 8 is I've outlined that scheme. That's the scheme that the prophets look at when they look at the progress of history. If we had uh, a panel discussion up here tonight with uh, Isaiah, um, Jeremiah, and Amos, and some of the prophets, and you had questions about the history, they wouldn't have known the history we know because they didn't live, they don't live now, if we had a time machine going backwards they would have in their heads this concept of Israel's history. So again, to look at those rows in the left column, there's the origin of the nation. We know when the nation was founded, obviously, in the Exodus. And then the second thing is they were pessimistic. They didn't believe the nation would do what God said it would do. So they, they looked to a decline in the nation. That's why it's discipline and exile. And these passages speak of Israel's apostasy from God. And because God has elected that nation to any, a destiny, he's not going to let it go. So the pro, that's why you have discipline and exile. If God didn't care for the nation, he wouldn't discipline and exile it. If the reason he's disciplining and exiling is the same reason a parent punishes their child, because they're trying to train him up in the way in which he should go. So the discipline and exile, painful though it is, has an, a, a bigger purpose. It's not just a hard time for Israel. It's to get her in shape for her future historical existence. Then the third row on Table 8 deals with judgment of nations. Now, why judgment of nations? Well, here's why. Who were the guys that God historically used to discipline Israel? Other nations, right? Assyria, Babylon, Media Persia, Greece, Rome. Those are all those nations that God used to bring discipline upon his nation. Well, does he leave the disciplining nations, that is, the Gentiles who are attacking Israel, is he going to let them totally destroy Israel? And the answer is no because Israel has a destiny. Israel will survive. Well, Israel is going to survive how? Because God is going to judge those nations, finally. So that's why in the prophets you'll read about, in Isaiah, you'll see about how he prophesies against the nations. 
and is of warning. So today, we're going to look at the analog of Leviticus 26. We're going to go to Deuteronomy 28. So if you turn in your Bibles uh, toward the front, Deuteronomy, and look at verse uh, chapter 28. This is, a, this is a parallel to that Leviticus 26 passage, but it has a little different emphasis. It was written later. It starts out with blessings, just like Leviticus, and then halfway through at verse 15, it switches to cursings. So the, the analog is, is there clear. God lays out, if you obey me, you'll be blessed. And if you mess around, you're going to be disciplined. Does anybody remember from last week what some of the areas of, of um, blessing and discipline were? Remember one of them when he talked about the climate? How do we say, what, is, what do we say that corresponds to today? Economy. The, the economy wasn't manufacturing then. The economy was agriculture. And you couldn't have a prosperous economy, agriculturally based, without a favorable climate. You know, we know this from the farmers in our state right now, uh, almost devastated from the drought. Um, if, you've, if you're around people who are into farming, you really realize, I mean, you talk about a horrendously risky investment. These guys put their life savings on the line every year. And if they have a bad crop, it's like, it's like putting your money in one stock and the thing goes down. Uh, you're in trouble real fast. So the economy was, was climate dependent. And God said, if you obey me, you'll have a favorable climate. Translation, your crops are going to come in well. You're going to have good crops. You're going to be prosperous. So there's an econ economic blessing and economic cursing. Then, remember, there was another one, public health. God said, if you will obey me, follow my rules, then you will have be blessed physically in your health. Don't follow my rules, and I'm going to give you mental problems, I'm going to give you physical problems, I'm going to give you all kinds of problems, because you're not listening to me, and I've got to get your attention. So, there again, public health issues. Uh, besides the economy and public health issues, what else did we say were some of the areas of blessing and cursing? Military. Prosperity is victory. As Douglas MacArthur said, there's no substitute for victory in war. No substitute for victory. And that's just, that's just the way it is. And military defeat is a horrible thing to, to deal with. So those are the cursings and the blessings. Now, Deuteronomy 28 repeats them. So, notice how it starts, verse 1. It says, um, now it shall be, if you, if you will diligently obey the Lord your God. See, there it is, the positive. Verse 2, all the blessings will come to you. Verse 3 says, blessed you will be in the city, blessed you will be in the country. So, it's urban and rural areas. It's a universal blessing for both those, those population areas. Notice verse 4, blessed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground, the offspring of your beast, the increase of your herd, the young of your flock. When he talks about increase of your herd, there's the economic blessing. Every, every one of the head of cattle has so many bucks. 
I never forget when I, when I was living in West Texas, and you go out there and you see these um, feeder lots where they bring the cattle to, to feed. And uh, I was mentioning to one of the people, why, one of the ranching type people, and I said, you know, why do you guys fill our meat with all these antibiotics? Because half the meat you eat is, you know, that, that cow has been feeding on antibiotics for all the time it's been in those feeder lots. And you say, well, why do you mess around with the meat? And the guy says, look, every one of those things is $1,500. And if I, in a feeder lot, you get diseased cattle, boom, the whole herd goes down, and you're in trouble. I mean, all, for all of a sudden now, you're $200,000 in the hole. So he's, I got to protect my investment. So you may not like antibiotics in your meat, but tough. Uh, you know, it's my cattle that I'm selling to you. So that's the dilemma. And what God says here is that the offspring of your beast, the increase of your herd, the young of your flock, that's business. That's economy. The Bible's a lot to say about economics. Don't re rarely hear it about in the pulpit, but it's all there. Blessed shall be your basket, your kneading bowl. Blessed you when you come in. Blessed you when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies to rise against you, to be defeated before you. The same theme as Leviticus 26. The blessing is a national type of blessing. It's on a large community that's identified as a nation in a place. So this is different than the church. If you want to see blessings and cursings directed to the church, which we'll later on see, Revelation 2 and 3. But if you look at the style of Revelation 2 and 3, where Jesus talks about this church, that church, this church, I'll take, you know, if you keep on messing around, we'll take the candlestick out and so forth, this kind of thing. You don't, he's not talking about economic blessing there. He's not talking in this terminology. That's because this is a directed to a nation. That is directed to the church, which is a supranational entity. Okay. Verse 10. Notice verse 10 does not make sense in the sense of it's, it's clearly directed to a one nation. So all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will be afraid of you. People may abound in prosperity and so forth and so on. Now verse 15. Here's the other, the dark side. But if it shall come about, if you will not obey the Lord your God to observe all his commandments and his statutes and so on, which I charge you, then all these curses will come upon you. And see the listing of cursings? Look at verse 16. Cursed you'll be. Verse 17. Cursed you'll be. Verse 18. Cursed you'll be. Verse 19. Cursed you'll be when you come in. Cursed you'll be when you go out. We'll send you curses, confusion, rebuke, and so on and so on. So it's really nasty stuff in here. And it just goes on and on. Notice, for example, as you go on, um, in uh, verse uh, 32, your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people, while your eyes shall look on and yearn for them, but there shall be nothing you can do. And that's the servitude. That's what happened in exile. I and mean, we all know the book of Daniel. You know how old Daniel was when he was taken prisoner and marched all the way eastward into the... Um, Iraq and Iran area. He was a teenager, young teenager. Um, so a lot of Jewish young people were just taken off, and they did that deliberately because what they realized is we got to get those young people. The old people die off a while, and we don't have to worry about them. It's the young people we want to get. And so we're going to take them prisoner because if we can take the Jewish young people prisoner, we've got their culture. We've got all the promise of the future. So we want those teenagers. We want to get them. 
And that's what happened in the exile. The book of Daniel tells about Jeremiah, prophesies about it, and so forth. Um, Verse 33, a people whom you don't know shall eat up the produce of your ground, all your labors. You shall never be anything but oppressed and crushed continually. Economic disaster. The Lord will bring, verse 36, you and your king whom you shall set over you to a nation neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you're going to serve other gods. And it goes on and on and on. And I think we all get the idea. That's verse 28. Okay. Now, uh, that's chapter 28. Now we're going to come to another theme in the book of Deuteronomy. And as you can tell by the chart on on page 114, table 8, this one introduces the second and third thing. So turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Now this is the hopeful thing. And this shows you that all was not bad in the sense that when these disciplinary things would come upon Israel, and actually, let me draw a timeline here so you can catch that several times this happened. Here's the nation Israel going along. Here's the time of David. Here's Solomon's day. And then uh, 721, about that time, the northern kingdom goes into exile. So they are knocked out. Then in 586, the southern kingdom goes into exile, and they're knocked out. And then 70 years later, 516, notice the time difference here, it's 70 years. Then there's a remnant of Jews that come back into the land, and the guys that write about it are Ezra and Nehemiah. So they report the history of what's called the restoration. But it wasn't a total restoration. It was only a partial restoration because there were many Jews left in the world and the Jews that were left in the world became known as the diaspora. That's a noun that refers to all the Jews scattered all over the world. They call that the diaspora. And that is the set of of Jews that perhaps will be the ones that are in, in the tribulation going to be doing a lot of evangelizing because they all know all the languages. The Jews have in place missionaries in every language because Jewish businessmen are in every country of the world. Know that They know the lingua franca and so on. So this is 516, it's a return. Well, time goes on until the crucifixion of Jesus. And then exactly 40 years after this, the Romans come in and they destroy Jerusalem. So again, they get knocked out. And then there's a few more revolutions here, the Bakakba revolution and so forth. So there's a lot of discipline goes on. And the discipline takes the form of being driven from the real estate of Palestine. That's characteristic of this cycle. And it happens again and again and again to the Jew. Now what's interesting is that in our time, for the first time since these dispersions, you have a massive influx So a considerable percent of the diaspora are coming back into the land. Now this is not a fulfillment of a blessing type of prophecy, but clearly if Jesus Christ is going to come back and find Jews living in Israel and a temple in Israel, which is what he's going to do, 
then it doesn't require a logician to think through, well, gee, if Jesus is going to come back, and when he comes back, the Jews are in the land, then what we are now seeing of the, of the progression of Jews coming out of Russia, the Jews coming out of Eastern Europe, uh, some Jews from America coming, Jews from other countries, Jewish from North Africa, from Syria, from Egypt, coming together in the land. They're being driven there, frankly, because how did, how did the Jews, what do you think has been the motivation for the modern Jew in the 20th century to go back to the land? It's been the, the wars in World War II and the, and the destruction of the, of the Jewish communities by, in Poland and Germany. So it's been Hitler and Nazism that drove them out of Europe. And Europeans can be really nasty to Jews. Europeans have a whole mean streak about them. Anti-Semitism comes out of their amillennialism. Both Romanism and Protestants believe in amillennialism. So here's where your eschatology affects you. Wherever Jews find a homeland, it's usually because there's a premillennial element. That is, people who believe in, in the future of Israel. So that's why, you know, it's not saying that we have a big love affair with the Jewish people, necessarily. It's just saying that we respect that God has a destiny for them. So here's the cycle of Israel. So we have these times when God is going to discipline. And that's what's being spoken of. Now, in Deuteronomy 30, here's the sovereignty of God over the whole thing. If we stopped with Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, we'd just have man's responsibility. We'd have man's volition, man's response, positive or negative, positive or negative. But in Deuteronomy 30, superintending all that is God's sovereign plan for history. So in verse 1 of Deuteronomy 30, so it shall be, now look carefully at this verse. Let's take this verse apart. Observe very carefully the structure here. It shall be, future, when all of these things have come upon you. Now, what are all of these things? What have we been talking about all in the book of Deuteronomy? It's this, the history, the, the curses and the blessings. All that history, when all these things that are articulated back there in the Old Testament, when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. See, there's the diaspora. And you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul, according to all I command you today, you and your sons. Then, verse 30, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Now, that's why we say that verse 3 is not being fulfilled with the modern state of Israel because they're not coming out of a positive volition to the Lord. They're coming because they're driven in there. So the, the modern state of Israel with a Jewish influx into the land is a setup for the future. But it's really not the final um, gathering here in faith. So the Lord would then restore you from captivity, have compassion on you, will gather you again from all the peoples. Now the reason verse 3 is important is, and if you'll hold a place at verse 30, it will give you a preview of coming attractions when we get into the prophetic passages, but if you'll open, hold a place there and turn in your New Testaments to Matthew 24. When you come across a passage like this in the New Testament, here Jesus is prophesying of the future.
In chapter 24, you can see if you just you let your eyes skim down through the verses, this is all prophecy of the future. And the question is, what is Jesus talking about here? The church or Israel? And it's a critical question to understand Matthew 24. Particularly if you look at verse 31 of Matthew 24. Because in verse 31 of Matthew 24, it says, When the Son of Man comes back, He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together His elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Now, a lot of people try to make verse 31 the same thing as Paul talking about the rapture in, in Thessalonians. What's wrong with that? Anybody's noticed? Think about it. Has the church even come into existence when Jesus is talking this in Matthew 24? The church hasn't even come into existence yet. It doesn't come into existence until Pentecost. So he can't be talking to the church because the church doesn't exist. But what he is talking about is gathering his elect from the four winds, from the end of this. He's not resurrect. There's no resurrection in verse 31. This is not resurrection. This is gathering, physical gathering of people that have been scattered back to the land. Now, that's all Jesus is doing is he's giving more details about Deuteronomy 30 and those Old Testament past. Same thing. That's why it's so important and why I'm spending so much time now in these Old Testament passages so you kind of get the picture of the way a Jew would think about his destiny. Okay, so back to Deuteronomy 30. In Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 to 7, we have what God is going to do for the nation. He says, verse 4, if your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you. From there he will bring you back. Now, how he's going to do this, we don't know. But apparently, somehow, supernaturally, this is going to happen, whether he has angels driving buses or what. But uh, something's going on because Jesus says he will send his angels and they will gather you. Now, the Jews have... All, there's other passages in the Old Testament refer to this. But if you remember back years ago when the Idi Amin nitwit was taking over Uganda, and you remember he made a big mistake. Remember Idi Amin's big mistake? He hijacked an aircraft with Jews aboard. And he landed it in Entebbe. Or the hijackers made a deal with him. And they had all these Jews in the airport terminal at Entebbe. Anybody remember what happened? Well, Rabin was the premier of Israel. And if you ever see the movie, there's two movies made about the raid on Entebbe. And you really ought to get them, because they're just a phenomenal story. But here's little Israel, thousands of miles away. Look on a map. Here's Entebbe, down in the heart of Africa. And the Jews in Israel say, we're going to get them. They're our people. They're holding them hostage, and we're going to rescue them. Now, that's an amazing story. What the Israelis did was they had three or four C-130 transports. They got snipers, and they got well-trained shock troops on those planes. They had refuelers. They made a deal with Kenya. So they flew all the way down the east side of Africa, across Kenya, and they had a plan. Because they knew Idi Amin because the Jewish engineers had built the terminal. 
So they had all the blueprints of the terminal. They knew what rooms the people were in. And so their idea, these C-130s came in at night. And they knew that the guards would do obeisance and so on if they saw um, Idi Amin. So they got one of the Jewish guys dressed up, black all over his face, like he was Idi Amin. They had put a Mercedes Benz on the C-130, just like Mercedes, just like Idi Amin's Mercedes Benz. C-130s come in, cut their engines, and silently land at the end of the runway. All of a sudden, out comes this Mercedes Benz with guys that look like Idi Amin and his bodyguards. So the guys that are guarding the hostages in the terminal come out of the terminal thinking this is Idi Amin coming. Well, meanwhile, what they don't see is out of the other C-130s are a bunch of these commandos coming around the backside of the terminal. All of a sudden, there's a big surprise. Bang, 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 and down go the, the, the guards, and the hostages are rescued. Well, I tell you the story because to commemorate that, Israel issued a coin. And on the coin, there's an inscription from the book of Deuteronomy, on eagle's wings, I will bring you home. And so that's how much they value this, this passage. This is not just spiritual stuff for them. They want, so there will come a time when the Jews are persecuted around the world, they will be saved, and they will be saved physically. So all this is in physical terms. Okay. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you will possess it. Now, if you look at verse 5, and you are arguing with someone about where the Jews own the land, if you look at verse 5, what land do you think they're going to be brought back to? What does it say? It defines the real estate boundaries, doesn't it? Because what does it say? The Lord your God will bring you into the land which what? Which your fathers possessed. Do we know the boundaries of what their fathers possessed? Absolutely. The Bible gives all the boundaries. So we know that the land belongs ultimately to Israel. Now, we don't know how the Lord's going to work all this out, but the land belongs ultimately to the Jews. Why? Because they're better than everybody else? Not at all. Because God says so. It's God's program. Verse 6. Now, here's the spiritual things, not just physical. It's also spiritual. Because remember we said the blessing won't come unless there's a, there's a regenerate heart. So the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul in order that you may live. And the Lord will inflict all the curses on your enemies and those that hate you and persecuted you. So you see that there's no violation in God's prophetic program of those blessings and cursings. It is not the case that, gee, God feels sorry for all the Jews that are suffering and he brings them back to the land. It's not so. He will work a work such that they, adhere, they come to him in obedience. So there's a spiritual rebirth along with a physical deliverance. You can't make these things different. And that's why I keep saying over and over again, that's the meaning of that phrase, and the Lord Jesus rode into Jerusalem, and he, he knew that he would be rejected. And you remember what he said, you're not going to see me again until you say, 
and he's talking about plural you. Plural. You people, the nation Israel, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, they will have to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. And that will all happen involved here. And that's why in verse 6 and 7, God is going to circumcise their heart. There's a spiritual revival that happens at this point in history. Then, verse 9, the Lord will prosper you abundantly in the work of your hands. See, there's the blessings now. See the blessings? Verse 9, those are the blessings that, that come out of this. Okay. So that's chapter 30. So now we go to the chapter 32 of Deuteronomy. And this chapter, we're going to spend a little time on the rest of the night because it has a structure to it that underlies the Old Testament prophets and how they, they ministered the Word of God. Now, this structure was informally known for centuries, Bible scholars. But in the 20th century, there was a group of Old Testament scholars that did a little work on a thing called form criticism, 19th century and 20th century. And out of that, a lot of it is just junk. It's just a lot of liberal, higher criticism and all the rest of it. But out of that discussion, biblical scholars began to look carefully at literary form and began to realize that there are passages in the Bible that have a certain form, like, for example, poetry, narrative, that sort of thing. Well, chapter 32 is one of those chapters that figures very centrally in this awareness of structure, of how something is written. And we call Deuteronomy 32 a lawsuit format. The scholars call it R-I-B, but the B is pronounced like it's a V. And they call this the Reeve. R-I-V is the way it sounds, but it's spelled R-I-B. The Reeve proceeding. Now, the Reeve proceeding is this. Let me give you the, the big idea, and then we'll see how it's illustrated. The lawsuit... You can't have a lawsuit unless you have law. You don't have a lawsuit unless two parties that are in antagonism are underneath this structure. And within that structure, you have a lawsuit. So in the Old Testament, here's the deal. God made a treaty with a nation. Now, what's the treaty? Sinaitic Covenant, Mosaic Treaty. When the nation violates that treaty, God brings lawsuit against them. Now, this was not understood for a long time because liberals would take these Old Testament prophets and turn them into social gospel people. These are the welfare people and so on. They say, oh, those we can't stand any part of the Old Testament. It's all gook, except we do like the prophets because they, they were champions of social causes. Well, they were. But they were champions of social causes inside of a lawsuit proceeding. Meaning, A, the prophets didn't invent, they were not innovators. They were not social innovators that invented welfare arguments. The prophets actually were, uh, instead of what we say radicals, they were reactionaries. The, the prophets went back 
to the Mosaic Treaty attacking the nation for violation of that earlier treaty. Makes sense, doesn't it? The word of God is being violated, so the cursings are going to come. We've already seen the blessings and the curses. Well, what the prophets would do is they were God's agents to announce discipline upon the nation. But obviously, if you have a lawsuit filed against you, you've got to know what's the person's problem. So when you have a lawsuit, the suit is over something. It's over some issue. So the Old Testament prophets would define what the issue was. We would say they bring conviction for sin. That's the bottom line of this. They would convince the nation that they had violated God's laws and treaty, and therefore they were going to be cursed. Well, now let's go in and I'll show you the structure of this, and then we're going to go to Old Testament prophets, and you'll see that this chapter 32 is quoted verbatim by the Old Testament prophets. They knew about this, and they consciously imposed this lawsuit format upon the nation. So Deuteronomy 32 starts out at verse 1. Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as, as rain, my speech distills. Clearly, this is not narrative. This is a poetry structure, poetic structure. Verse 3, I proclaim the name of the Lord. I ascribe greatness to our God, and so on. It's Moses speaking this. But in verse 1, we got a little interpretation problem. Look carefully at verse 1. And notice, to whom... Moses is speaking. Now, it's easy because this is poetry. It's easy to kiss this off as just kind of poetic idiom. Okay? Well, it's just, you know, it's just flowery language of the poet. Well, Moses could have probably done flowery language, but there's more seriousness to this than just a metaphor, a poetic metaphor. He's calling something to witness. He's saying to the heavens and to the earth, we want you to act as witnesses. Now, actually, probably what he's talking about is there are angelic observers to this process. And they're acting as witnesses to the behavior of the nation Israel. So, Moses defines this. He says, Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. So, Moses is now acting as a prophet who, in whom the word of Yahweh comes... And he's announcing this. Now he gives an amazing, amazing, this call a song of Moses. It's, it's, it's like a national anthem, except it's got, our national anthem has just past history, what happened at Fort McHenry. But this is a national anthem that gives the future of the nation, as well as the past. Then he goes on, verse 5, you can see, here it begins. Oh, verse 4. Notice the difference between verse 4 and 5. What do you notice about the difference? In verse 4, who is he talking about? The Lord. The rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are just. A God of faithfulness, without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Verse 5, they, talking about the people, they have acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children. They are a perverse and crooked generation. So there's your antagonist in the lawsuit. God was perfectly faithful to his word, and the people were depraved. Do you thus repay the Lord, foolish and unwise people? Is he not the Father who has brought you? He has made you and established you. 
So he's going back, and verse 8, by the way, uh, is an interesting thing. Talking about the origin of the nation here. See chart, table 8. I'm just following that chart, right column. <clears throat> Notice verse 8. This tells you something about world history and people groups. Rather phenomenal verse. And the critics always like to, to write it off as, oh, this is just poetic license. No, it isn't. This gives you the mathematical structure of world civilization here. Now look at this. You won't find this in a history book. So most historians don't read it, and the ones who do just write it off. <clears throat> when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, he's speaking of this as something past to his day. Well, when did the Most High give the nations their inheritance? <clears throat> Let's look on a timeline. <clears throat> Here's Moses. 1440 thereabouts. We're looking backwards, backwards, backwards to when the nations <clears throat> were given their inheritance. Now, when were the nations given their inheritance? Anybody hear the term table of nations? Anybody recognize where that's from? Daniel, uh, Genesis chapter 10, table of nations. Seventy nations in there, in that list. There are the nations that came out across the earth when Noah plus his three sons, wife, and three daughters-in-law. So we have one, two, we have eight people. <clears throat> Those eight people... Those eight people made lots of babies. They're going to compete with the Beaslers. And they colonized the world. They colonized the world. Now, we don't think of that. Because when, every time you mention Noah, people think of the ark and the flood, which is fine. But what you need to start thinking about is when somebody mentions the word Noah to you, you think of him as a colonizer, as a grand motif of a Christopher Columbus. I mean, this guy Noah and his sons, these are the guys that colonized what we call planet Earth after the great devastation of the flood. These are the architects of what we call civilization. They went all over the land. They evidently spoke Semitic. Remember when we went through Genesis, there's, there's evidence, linguistic evidence of Semitic... Anybody know the, the peninsula that Spain is on? What's it called? Iberian Peninsula. Semitic root. What is the Semitic root in Spain for? That goes back centuries. And you have, uh, in Ireland, you have the appearance of E-B-E-R. What's that doing in Ireland? And you, you have this mysterious roots here and there all over the world, these Hebrew roots. Where does this come from? We believe it came out of the fact that this one family spoke a proto-Semitic language related to Hebrew. And they went out in the fourth, and, and Genesis narrates the destiny of his three sons. These guys had three characteristics wherever they went. A book that will uh, interest you, if you're interested in these things, uh, is called Noah's Three Sons. 
And Arthur Custance is the author of that. He's dead now. He's a Canadian. But I understand that there's a website somewhere where Arthur Custance, I don't know whether it's called ArthurCustance.org or just Custance.org. You'd have to do a search or something, find it. But I understand somebody told me that book has come back into print. It was printed by Zondervan back a decade or two ago. But it's a magnificent work where Custance goes in and he shows you how you can trace which peoples come from those three sons. Uh, it's pretty amazing how he does it, quite pretty objectively. Well, anyway, I won't spend more time on that. It's just to intrigue and stimulate some interest here. Verse 8. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to what number? According to the number of the sons of Israel. Now, that's the sons of Jacob. And how many were there that went down into the Egypt? Seventy. So now we have an interesting confirmation. Verse 8 refers back to the table of nations that has 70 people groups, and we have 70 sons of Jacob going down into Egypt, third generation of that family. Now these 70 subgroups are all mixed up today in world history, but this colonization program apparently was well designed. I mean, let's remember here something here. Let's, this, I know this sounds incredible to some of you who have, have just learned only one side of history and one view of history, the secular view. But think about who are the guys that had the engineering expertise to build the pyramids? And why is it that the earliest pyramids are better than the later pyramids? How come the guys that were first on the block built better pyramids than the guys that came later? If technology evolves, You'd think that the, you know, as they built more and more pyramids, they figured out how to do it better. No. As they built more and more pyramids, they got sloppier. So who had the idea about the pyramid? Where did that come from? So these guys weren't stupid. And I, I showed you here a map. Uh, they mapped Antarctica. I've showed that a number of times. We know it's a map of ancient Antarctica before the Ice Age because it's got the riverbeds in it. And the riverbeds today are underneath an ice cap. So who was it that mapped the Antarctic continent? And it's a stunning, a stunning historical point because to map something, you need to measure latitude and longitude. Anybody know how to measure latitude? You know how you measure latitude? Sun angle. Knowing the date of the calendar, and you take the sun angle. You shoot the sun, find out the angle between it and the horizon. At noon, at certain solstice, summer solstice, winter solstice, Still use it. I use it at Aberdeen Proving Ground all the time. When the stupid survey equipment doesn't work, I, I was ridicule them and say, look, I'll use the same method the Pharaohs used, better than your equipment. And so this is latitude. But the other problem is, how do you measure longitude? Now that's the problem. You get on an airplane, a BWI, and you go to Denver. You're going west. What happens to your time clock when you go from Baltimore to Denver? Denver's two hours behind. Why is that? Because of the apparent motion of the sun. So when you're going on longitude, time changes. Only problem is you need a watch. Now how do you do that? Somebody, whoever they were, of these suns that mapped the Antarctic continent, and by the way, mapped South America, mapped the continents apparently, 
they had some ability to measure time. And yet today, if you look up in a book, watches, clocks, somebody will tell, well, they had water clocks and they had something else. Well, maybe they did. And, and somebody in the fifth century invented them. Like nobody had a sense of time before 500 BC or 1000 BC. No, no. These guys had watches. They plated jewelry with citrus acid batteries. They had electricity. So we think somehow we're the only people that ever walked the face of the earth that has these things. That's not true. We haven't got a clue as to the technology these guys brought, brought at the beginning of our civilization. Every once in a while you get glimpses of this and then the secular people, because they don't believe the Bible, now they're saying, well, that was because visitors from outer space helped the human race at critical times in their past evolution. So no matter what data you bring up, we always get some smart aleck, unbelieving answer to, to, to meet the, the data. But take this data seriously. This actually happened. And verse 8 is a historical example of real history. For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance, and it goes on and on. Verse 15, here begins the discipline in exile. Keep your outline, table 8. From verses 15 to 26, Jerushan grew fat, he kicked, you're grown fat, thick, and sleek, he forsook God who made him, he scorned the rock of his salvation, he made him jealous with strange gods. So there we go, there's the decline. And we go all the way down to verse 26. I would have said, I will cut them in pieces, I will remove the memory of them from man. Now watch verse 26 and 27. Verses 26 and 27 are a poetic revelation of the anger of God to the sin of his people. Now look at that. This is verse 26. God is expressing himself. He says, I would have cut them to pieces. I will remove the memory of them from among men had I not feared the provocation by the enemy, lest their adversaries should misjudge, lest they should say, Our hand is triumphant and the Lord has not done this. Now, verse 27, folks, is an example of the glory of God. You know, we use that term, you know, flippantly, too often in religious circles, and all the glory of God, and God be glorified. Well, here's a case where God is glorified. And it's, it's a great illustration to tighten up how you think about this get a handle on what this word is, not just some religious kook word. When it's talking about God glorifying himself, it means that God is concerned with his reputation. That when he undertakes to something, he wants the credit for doing it. And he's not going to share that credit with anybody else. So here these nations are attacking Israel. And if they beat Israel into a pulp, and labor there, totally destroyed, they're going to say, well, we were so good, we got those Jews. I mean, look at it today. I mean, we just had, still this week, going on in Egypt. We've got the Egyptian national television going through the protocols of the elders of Zion to teach hatred to all the kids. And so they think they, they are the ones that are doing it. So God says, my glory is involved here. I chose these people and they screwed up, and I'm going to discipline them, but I'm not going to let them be totally destroyed because my glory is at stake here. See, it's not because of the Jews. It's because of God's glory. He is the one who promised it. For they are a nation lacking in counsel. And he goes on, he's going to dis he talk about how he's going to get the, get the um, nations. 
He goes on, their wine is the venom of serpents. Is not laid up in store with me, sealed up my treasuries. Verse 34, vengeance is mine and retribution. The day of their calamity is near, impending things are hasting upon them. The Lord will vindicate his people and will have compassion on his servants when he sees their strength is gone and none remaining. That's the ultimate redemption of the nation Israel. It's not addressed to the church. It's addressed to Israel. And he will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they sought refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices? Verse 39, see now, I, I am he. There are no gods beside me. It is I who put to death. It's I who give life. I have wounded. I heal. There's no one who can deliver from my hand. I will lift up my hand to heaven and say, I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on justice, I will render vengeance to my adversaries. I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives for the long-haired leaders of the enemy. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will atone for his land and his people. There's a glorious end to history. And it is going to be centered upon Israel and what God is going to do with that people. Now, I promised you that this is a, more than a forecast. It's a bringing of a lawsuit against the nation for their sin, but yet it's a lawsuit whose penalties are bounded by God's sovereign election of the nation Israel. Okay? Now, I'm going to take you to two or three Old Testament prophecies, and that's all the time we're going to have tonight. If you'll turn to Isaiah, there's a well-known prophet. Isaiah chapter 1. And I said, watch for the reeve proceedings. This lawsuit is embedded in the thought forms of the Old Testament prophets. Verse 2. Whom does the prophet Isaiah call upon? Exactly the same one that Moses called upon. See, this wasn't just poetic idiom back in Deuteronomy 32. Because when Isaiah goes to bring lawsuit against the nation, verse 2 of chapter 1 of Isaiah, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons, I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. The ox knows its owner, a donkey his master's manger, but Israel does not know, my people does not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, sons who act corruptly. And then in verse 5, Isaiah begins to describe what's going to, the discipline that's come upon them, all the way down to verse 23. And he says in verse 16, wash yourself. See the appeal? This is how the prophets worked. They worked to indict the nation for violation of the Sinaitic Treaty. And he says in verse 16, because God doesn't want to destroy the pen nation, he says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice. And that's that famous verse, verse 18, that we all quote in the Christian circles, come now and let us reason together. Though your skins be as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Notice the reasoning together. Do you see now the context? This is the middle of a lawsuit here. Of course they're reasoning together because this is how you arrive at conviction. Not by emotion, 
emotion may be there, but emotion doesn't lead you anywhere. It doesn't help you think through anything. In fact, it impedes it. You're reasoning together about what's the problem? What's going on here? Now, verse 24 parallels Deuteronomy 32. Look what he says. After he gets through the lawsuit, he indicts the people for their sin. What does he say in verse 24? Look at that. There's a shift in the text. The Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, declares, Ah, I will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself on my foes. I will also turn my hand against you, will smite your dross of a lie, I will remove all your alloy. Then I will restore your judges at the first, your counsels at the beginning. Look at the hope now in verse 26. And you will be called a city of righteousness, a faithful city. Zion will be redeemed. Now, we, we won't have time to go into some of the others. We'll come back next week and work on some of the other prophets. But what I'm trying to show you here is that there's a structure in the Old Testament. These prophets just weren't yelling at people. They were consciously doing something. They were appealing to the witnesses, the heavens and the earth that saw all this sin going on. And then they appealed to the cursing section of the Sinaitic Covenant. If you look at these cursings, they all fit Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Nothing new here. And then they would come to the end and they would say, but there's hope because God is going to redeem this nation. God never throws Israel away. And you want to watch that because there's Christian theologians by the Carlo that are saying God's done with Israel. God is not done with Israel. Do you see any sign that God's done with Israel here in these texts? Not at all. Okay, uh, next week we'll continue working with some of these prophets out of Deuteronomy 32, finish up with Israel so we can get into the church. Father, we thank you once again for your faithfulness, for how detailed a view of history that you've given us, that history is indeed his story or your story. And as Christians, Father, we sit here amazed at the fact that history, which many of us were taught in school, is totally purposeless actually has a divine purpose behind it. That there are certain numbers of people groups from the very start of civilization itself as they fanned out across the world, as you partitioned the world to these various groups and sons of Noah. We thank you for this lesson and the insight it gives into your sovereignty, into your love, and into your determination to bring redemption to man. We thank you now in Christ's name. Amen. Oh, yes, next week, I guess, is Thanksgiving, so we won't have it next week. See what wise do? Okay. Two weeks from tonight. We'll take 15 minutes for any Q&A. Anybody got questions? Nobody's got questions. Well, George Bachman isn't here, so Debbie, I guess you're going to have to stimulate. <laughs> All right. Okay. Yeah, we didn't finish that one. Can I, as a Christian, take those passages in some form as a promise? You know, some of those. Sure. I guess that's where I was.
you know, do I totally just look at them as this is the history, this is, these are promises and cursings for Israel, and it's just an example for me as a Christian, or can, you know, some of them, I mean, some of them, you know, we, we claim some of those promises, I mean, they kind of get pulled out of there, and we claim those promises, so how, you know, Okay. Uh, well, Debbie's raised a basic question here, and it, it, it um, it's a quite important one because it concerns uh, the implication of separating Israel from the church. Um, Debbie's question is that if you make the separation between Israel and the church as two distinct entities that God deals with, then is it true then that two-thirds of the Bible is written to Israel uh, which has many promises in it can't be used by people in the church well I think there's the answer to that is that's not really not what the implication is but you just have to be careful how you apply the promises but let me give you illustrations um, you'll often hear it said by well-meaning people that the Chronicles 1 if my people call by my name so forth and so on well that was given to Israel it wasn't given to the United States of America <clears throat> so how then do you apply that truth to our country because first of all uh, let's look at our position in the church I'm anticipating things here on Thursday night because going to have to go ahead and think about the church. The church is not a nation. The church exists in Iraq and it exists in the United States of America. The church exists in Africa and it exists in China. And we're all united with that church through the Lord Jesus Christ. When the church is persecuted like it's being done in Sudan and most Muslim countries, then that's attacks against us. That's attacks against the body of Christ wherever the body is. So there's this supra, uh, S-U-P-R-A, supranational entity called the body of Christ that occupies many different lands, many different people groups. So now I as an individual believer, I'm, an, I'm living in America. I have in America a privilege that many Christians don't have who live in other national entities. I'm going to answer your question in two ways, Debbie. I'm going to answer it as far as our citizenship applications of the principle as, as groups within a national entity, and then as far as personally applying them in our personal individual life. So let me just come at it from the standpoint of what is our function as Christian citizens. We live in the United States of America, not Iraq, not Sudan, not another country, but in the United States of America. And this country is a nation, and it is a distinct nation that has a distinct destiny in history. We don't have prophets, so we don't know exactly what the destiny is, but each of those people groups that are outlined, that God has a purpose for, for various people groups, and he has a purpose for America. What guidance do we have for his purposes for America? Well, two areas, both from the Old Testament, well, one's from the New Testament. Remember that passage in Acts 17 when Paul says, he has made of one all nations of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, that, purpose clause, Acts 17:26, that they may seek after God, 
So right there, there's a purpose in all national groups and national histories of these groups is that the rise and fall of nations uh, has as its purpose to stimulate God consciousness. Clearly, that's Acts 17. I, mean, I didn't write it. It's no debate. It's just there. It's Acts 17:26, I believe, verse is. And that's related because if you go back in the Old Testament to Isaiah, to Jeremiah, these prophets, while they were administrating a lawsuit against Israel, guess what else they were doing? They were making political commentary on the nations round about. Jonah, Nineveh. Um, you have Amos, you have Micah. You read through these things. In Isaiah, there's whole sections of chapters devoted to individual nations. And if you look at the study, the Old Testament prophets going after these nations, they're not indicting the nations for violation of the Mosaic Law Code, because they didn't have the Mosaic Law Code. But what the prophets are indicting the national entities is what we would call basic morals. The, the systems under which Abraham would have lived in his time. The moral structures inherited by virtue of the Noahic colonization program. That nations are held responsible to that ethic. So they're not out there lawlessness. lawlessness. The Sinaitic Covenant is said to be the better, best law code ever given in history. God says, what law is there like the one I've given Israel? So that is a model law. Okay, so now here we are, American citizens. We're participants in our nation. And we're participants in a special way in our country that believers in other countries aren't. We have representative, participatory government. So we have opportunities in our nation that other Christians never had. The, the slaves of Rome didn't have what we got. So, in the New Testament, there aren't many instructions given to the early church because the early church didn't have voting rights. They didn't have no votes. They didn't have privileges. So, there's not, so you have to get what we can do by implication. So, what do we do? Here's what I do. Here's how I think it through. I go back to the Old Testament and I look and see what wisdom principles I can find in the Sinaitic Code. For example... In the Sinaitic Code, and I've mentioned this before in Thursday nights, is look at the penal system in ancient Israel. Now, here we are. We have more people in jail in this country as a percent of the population than any other country on earth. You know how much a prisoner costs? The taxpayers? Every single prisoner in prison? At least thirty to $40,000 a year. And we have more people in prison than any other country on earth. Now, there's a problem here somewhere. I mean, when you see the statistics, we say, what is going on with us? We got more sinners in this country? No. Because our penal system has one solution to every problem, and that's put them in jail. What did the penal system in the Old Testament do? The penal system had Old Testament had at least four different tools available. Five tools. Capital punishment. And, of course, there are legitimate problems with administering capital punishment. It can be done in such a way that only the people with rich attorneys get off. I agree to that. And that's something you try to correct as citizens in this country. But you don't abolish capital punishment. That is the foundation of government. When was capital punishment given? When the God gave government to Noah. 
He gave them the sword. Sorry, people don't like it. It's not pleasant to go kill people. But corporal punishment is a responsibility of society, given to society. So politically, as a Christian, in my national entity, am I going to be for capital punishment or against it? I'm going to be for it. Am I going to try to strive to make it equitable? Yes. Not stupid. Uh, I mean, you know, we, we want to be fair about it. What's the second tool in the penal system? The second tool in the penal system was corporal punishment. Ooh, we don't want to do that. I'll tell you something. I've worked in prisons quite a while, and we, we know people at work, Art and Lynn. Tell you what, corporal punishment is a lot less abusive than what goes on in the prison system. When you stick somebody in a cage like an animal for 25 years, there's abuse going on. And it's not necessarily physical. So I'm sorry, I don't buy into this business about corporal punishment being abusive. I think what we're doing to the prisoners sometimes is abusive. In the head. You know, a child, yes, we want to protect children against physical punishment in the sense of abuse. But parents can be very mean to kids and hurt them very deeply in their soul by what they say with their mouth. It doesn't have to be a, a swat. It can be what you say, a cutting remark. It wounds the soul. Well, you can do the same thing to people. And when you take away responsibility and dignity in a caged animal-like thing, Forget about rehabilitation. It isn't going to happen. So there's, there's capital punishment, there's corporal punishment, there's restitution. That means somebody gets off their butt and works and fixes the problem they messed up with and stop having the taxpayers have to pay for it. They pay for it. And then if they don't pay for it, you know what the, in the Old Testament was? If you didn't do restitution, you were, you were killed. That's, a, that's an abominable sin, violation of the Yahweh's courts. So there's a little motivation there to, yeah, I guess I better make restitution. And then the fourth thing was fines, which we have. Fines were used. And then they had the cities of refuge for manslaughter, defense against manslaughter. There's a lot of insights, and I'm just giving you this one area, penal system, as loaded with insights. Oh, is God stupid, or does God really know what he's doing? So I say to myself, knowing some sociologists, people that take these courses, um, you know, I have to choose. I read books in sociology and I read the Word of God that tells me how God himself inspired the penal system of a national entity. And I have to go with how God inspired the penal system of a national entity. And I have to believe that he's wise enough that that's, if we could mimic some of those principles, we'd be better off than what we are today. So. Briefly, how do I take the Old Testament? As a citizen, participant in a national entity, I borrow those principles as wisdom, trying to bring them over to my time in my situation culturally and nationally. So I see the law and the Old Testament as a vast repository of wisdom. We could go into economics, we could go into all other areas. But let's just take one. We could go in the military. There's a lot of military wisdom given, by the way, in the Bible. Set up with how a military uh, group, organization should be organized, who should be in it, uh, the motivation for serving in the military, and so forth. It's all there. It's in the Deuteronomic Code. Um, foreign policies, how to conduct a war, just doctrine and just war. It's, it's loaded with all these wisdom principles. But everybody poo-poo's, oh, that's just the Bible. That's just the Bible. We don't listen to that. We'll listen to our PhDs from Harvard, 
who haven't read the Bible and don't know what the Ten Commandments are. So the Old Testament has these wisdom principles. Okay, That's one area. Now, what do I do, and Debbie's other side of her question was, what do I do as an individual Christian linking up the promise? Can I use some of those promises? In this way, who made those promises? God made those promises. Is God the same yesterday and today and forever? Yes. Does the way he treated his people tell me and give me confidence how he would treat me? Yes. So I can use those promises because they tell me about my God and how he works with people. He worked with Israel this way and knowing his character, I can say, I trust you to work that way with me. It's just I have to recognize I am an individual in a different time in history, in a different place than those people are. And I don't live under the Mosaic Law Code. But I live under the, under the same God who made that law code. And he may have administrated, I mean, obviously, I don't have property rights, title, in my tribe to a piece of real estate in Palestine. So I can't take any of those promises. But where God has promised certain blessings for obedience, why can't we take those? So I think we can. God promises that, that, we'll be, uh, that blessing comes from obedience. Now, the, the problem is we always have to recognize that you have other reasons for suffering. Uh, we're not preaching a gospel, a prosperity gospel, which people get off on, you know. Um, we're not doing that. But we're saying, generally speaking, when you follow the mandates of the Word of God, all other things being equal, you'll be blessed. I'll give you an example, simple example. Years and years ago, a Seventh-day Adventist medical doctor wrote a book called None of These Diseases. It was a fascinating book because as a doctor, he had insights into health issues. And he said, you know, it's very interesting. If we would conduct ourselves with some of the hygienic codes that are embedded in the Mosaic Law, we'd be a healthier society. I, 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 two, two examples come to mind. This is, again is this wisdom idea. One is circumcision. You know when babies were circumcised in the Bible? Eighth day, wasn't they? When did we circumcise in the hospital? Third day. All right, just as fast as we can and get them out of here. Send them home. You know when prothrombin the clotting mechanism in blood peaks in a baby? Eighth day. Now, is that an accident? Or did Moses know his, his blood chemistry and he said, ooh, I see prothrombin on the eighth day. No, God showed Moses that. Now, there's a wisdom there. He didn't make it the fifth day or the seventh day or the third day. He made it the eighth day. Why? Well, I don't care. That's just God being arbitrary. No, it isn't God being arbitrary. He knows about prothrombin. So it's the eighth day. Well, S.I. McMillan pointed out something else. Remember in, in history, what was the worst thing that happened in Europe in the Middle Ages? Almost killed half the people, Paul. The plague. Now he says, you know, as a medical doctor, I've studied that plague. Do you know how that plague could have been stopped? If they'd gone back to the sanitary law codes of the Mosaic Law. Where were the latrines supposed to be in the camp? Outside. Simple. Where were the latrines in medieval Europe? The street. 
duh. And we got diseases. Now I wonder what happened. So here again, it's, there's a lot of wisdom built into the scriptures. Common sense stuff worked into the scriptures. Great stuff. So answer to Debbie's question in a nutshell is A, as citizens of a nation, you can borrow wisdom principles from those law codes. They're full of it, chock full of it. Two, as individuals, we can claim promises given to them in the sense of bringing them over and realizing their promises I can apply because the God who made them is the same. He's a promise-keeping God, and he wants to bless people. But he wants to bless us when we're obedient to him. And he's going to discipline us. We never want to bring those over. But, but hey, both ways, baby. Uh, the discipline comes when we disobey. So it's not that we're disconnected from Israel. It's just we're trying to be careful of those Old Testament scriptures to have them illuminate us properly and accurately to our position. You can't just mix the two like, you know, a salad. Okay, well, next week we're going into more, more of the prophets and, and get straight on Israel and some vocabulary issues.